Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hello and welcome to the Quillette podcast. My name's Toby Young and I'm an associate editor. I recently spoke to Wilfred Riley, an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, about his new book, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Riley is also the author of Hate Crime Hoax and one of the contributors to the 1776 Project, a counterpoint to the New York Times' 1619 Project. We spent the first 15 minutes talking about coronavirus, but I've chopped all that out because I'm assuming that if you're self-isolating because of COVID-19, the last thing you want to hear is even more chat about the virus. Taboo, uh, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, is designed to sort of open up the kind of conversations we just had. The initial idea for the book actually came from my partner, Jane. Um, We were talking about, you know, what would the follow-up book be? Regnery had mentioned they might want a book. There were other publishers that were interested. And the thing that kept coming to my mind is that chapter two of the book, Hate Crime Hoax, discusses cancel culture and all of these things that you're sort of not supposed to say. And ironically, that became one of the most read chapters of the book, where I just say it's not just you know, hate crime, that's one of these things that's not to be discussed, or black-on-white crime, or white-on-black crime. So the plot line of Taboo, essentially, is that I break down 10 of these extremely hot-button issues, uh, 11 if you count the little shoehorn in there about the transgender uh, discussion, and give my opinion, and I give, I think, the scientific data and research. I mean, I've done some solid pieces myself, and there are obviously a large number of other quantitative academics cited throughout the book. But I mean, kind of getting to the point, chapter one is uh, looks at Black Lives Matter, which only recently ended, which in that cocktail party sense, I mean, completely dominated the American upper middle class conversation, especially as a black man for two years, three years. So I look at whether police actually are killing African-American men in large numbers. And after the collapse, not the collapse, but after the, you know, fade from prominence of BLM, A number of people, including Heather McDonald at Manhattan Institute, have done this. This is one of the more in-depth chapters to do it. But, I mean, what I find is that during the year that Black Lives Matter came to prominence, when the claim seemed to be that there were thousands of young brothers being brutally murdered by white cops while unarmed, um, what I actually found is that there were about 1,000 people total that were shot by police. Uh, Only 258 of them were black. The total number of unarmed black men shot specifically by white officers in the year was 17. Um, If you look at least state by state, the groups most likely to be shot by police seem to be lower income whites and recent Latino immigrants. So I talk about this. I talk about the Black Lives Matter claim. I talk about the reality. I talk about why police violence against whites is almost never covered. One of the most striking statistics from my standpoint in the book was that the one thing that's not even disputed, you can dispute whether the slight black overrepresentation is due to racism or higher crime rate, but one thing that's not even disputed is that 70% of the people shot by the cops 
are white, including Caucasian Hispanics. And those cases received something like five or ten, it was a ten or more, but about ten percent of all coverage of police shootings in the USA. So I talk about why, I talk about the media. Chapter two is interracial crime. And there, there are a couple of different points. I mean, I point out that the interracial crime itself is fairly rare. Uh, there are about 12 million crimes in a typical year, and in a typical year, about 600,000 would be white-on-black or black-on-white violent crime, so that's 5%. But the, the taboo component of that chapter is that interracial crime generally, and I believe this is true in Britain as well, is more than 70% minority-on-white. It's not Klansmen unprovokedly attacking African-American men. And this, again, is rarely discussed in the media. So there's the interracial crime chapter. Um, I discuss concepts like white privilege, cultural appropriation, what racism means. I mean, one of those points that's just obvious that you're not supposed to discuss is that anyone can be a racist using any of the 10 or 12, you know, real dictionary definitions of uh, the term. I give an immigration policy for the USA where I say that we should admit only, what was it, um, sane, non-criminal, employable, uh, mostly able-bodied individuals. And that became one of the most controversial things I said in the book, because the argument that I'm discriminating against, for example, the mentally ill. And then in the final chapter, I criticized some of the uh, issues with the extreme fringe right or the alt-right, just pointing out that in the USA, we're not going to break up into ethno-states. This is all just fantasy. But each chapter of the book is designed to take on another topic that you're just not supposed to discuss, interracial crime. Chapter three talks about race and IQ. Um, chapter four talks about quote-unquote slum culture. And as I said, I kind of shoehorn in a discussion of, you know, can men simply decide to become women? So it's, it's my take on each of these things. What's the reaction been so far? Have, um, have any uh, protesters um, uh, gathered outside your study um, and um, uh, tried to run you off campus? No, actually, that, that's one of the things that I talk about in the book, um, in passing, of course. But I mean, one thing that I think gets almost ignored in contemporary discussion is the role of social media in minimizing fringe voices. So the, the university that I teach at is a typical good one. It's a state university, Kentucky State. We happen to be a historically black college. But, I mean, we're located in the south. We're in the downtown of the Kentucky State Capitol. It's a reasonably, you know, moderate to conservative environment. And I've never seen a protester on campus. Right. So I think that very often, and I, I think the same would be true at you know, Purdue or Southern Illinois or most other good mid-sized Midwestern schools. Um, so I think very often what we see on Twitter in particular, Twitter, very useful for spreading information, but often a garbage fire. But Facebook, so on down the line, is very often kind of extreme voices getting magnified. So I have, I have no doubt whatsoever that if I were teaching in the women's studies department at the Claremont colleges, you know, I would encounter a lot of stuff on campus. But, you know, political science at Kentucky State, no. I've had a lot of good in-depth discussions with students about the book, actually, which, uh, which pleased me. The book, in terms of sales and all that, obviously available on Amazon and quote-unquote wherever fine books are sold, but was doing um, extremely well, and then obviously um, a lot of things happened in society. But the, re the reaction to it that I've gotten has generally been pretty good. Have you been following the difficulties that um, Roland Fryer has been getting into at Harvard. Um, it's an interesting example. Here is um, an African-American social scientist um, who has challenged some of the 
claims of the Black Lives Matter movement um, pointed out that actually um, African-American males are no more likely to die um, by being shot by a cop than um, their white or Hispanic counterparts. Um, and some people um, think that that's been a factor in um, the ongoing investigation and I think his suspension um, at Harvard. Do, do you have a take on that? Do you think if you were at Harvard, no. you, you, you'd be in, 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 a, in a great deal of difficulty now? You might be in danger of losing your job, but because you're at Kentucky State, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think it necessarily has to do with um, the fact that Harvard's an Ivy institution, that kind of thing. I mean, I think at Berkeley, for example, one of the, you know, the better public universities, or the one of the more leftist public universities, because the schools I mentioned are pretty good. I think you'd have the same issues. Yeah, it's entirely possible. You know, I don't want to slander anybody in the non-legal sense of the term. I don't know who's involved or what. Um, Mr. Fryer's accused of, as I recall, it's a sexual impropriety sort of situation. But yeah, I, I definitely think that can happen. I mean, just personally, when I was writing my first book, Hate Crime Hoax, I was in the process of going up for tenure. And it kind of sharpened my pen a little bit because, I mean, even in one of the Midwestern institutions, there's definitely the question of if I don't get tenure and, you know, this becomes a bestseller, what happens? So you worry about it. But in practice, I would say my campus has been pretty supportive. By the way, a shout out to Roland Fryer there. Roland Fryer, um, major contribution to the social sciences with his papers. What he did was pretty much what you've said. He actually used modern methods to look at whether African-Americans, black guys, are any more likely to be shot by the police than white or Hispanic men? And he found the answer is no. But what he did is something that's almost absent from kind of left-wing woke social science, which is that he used modern multivariate analysis. So one of the things I've said pretty consistently is that if you take most examples that are given of quote-unquote institutional racism, and you adjust for variables other than race, which is critically important, the gap goes away. So, I mean, a classic example would be um, African-American men earn about 86% of what white American men do. And this is invariably attributed to racism. I mean, 99% of the time it's discussed in the center-left mainstream media. But almost all of that gap goes away. The conservative writer and you know, now commentator and so on, Dinesh D'Souza, and a liberal U.S. government economist, uh, June Gottlieb, I think, found this out back in 1995. So if you adjust for age, a huge chunk of the gap disappears. One of the things that's remarkable here is that the average black man is 27, while the average white man is 58. Wow. That's a modal average. That's the most common age. And, you know, median average is a bit closer. But still, when you talk about anything from uh, crime rate to income, it's pretty silly to compare a 60-year-old guy with a 20-year-old guy. I mean, so that's, that's a huge part of it. Uh, another aspect is region. Uh, African-Americans are more likely to live in the South because without being glib, that's where the boats landed, um, whereas fewer whites do. Incomes in the South are often nearly equivalent for blacks and whites, but there are more black people in the South. Um, and just go, going on down the list, I mean, I think the third thing that made a big difference was uh, tested SAT or IQ style score. And again, as I say in the race and IQ chapter, I don't I think that's a cultural thing. That's not due to either genetics or, you know, implacable white racism. But if you take a black guy and a white guy that are both from Dearborn, Michigan, that have a solid SAT score and B average um, and are the same age, those two guys are going to have very similar life outcomes. So this massive claim about racism disappears if you compare the same individuals. 
And that's what Fryer did in the context of crime. I mean, one of the things he found is that if you're looking at police shooting or prison population, you need to look at the crime rate. And the crime rate is definitely higher for black men than it is for white men. It's about 2.1 to 2.4 times the white rate. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that got him in some hot water. Uh, hopefully he gets through it. I don't, I don't know the exact details of the situation, but I will say it was one of those things like um, Jeffrey Epstein's suicide, where when you heard it, you weren't surprised. We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuel Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. So another front on which you're waging this battle against the idea that um, America is um, systemically racist and uh, suffers from this indelible original sin is the 1776 Project. Tell me a little bit about that. How's that going? Yeah, so the 1776 project is a, I mean, our pitch line is pro-black, pro-American in high lit, bold letters. The 1776 project really is that. I mean, this is an idea that was initially put together. This is an initiative that was initially put together by uh, Bob Woodson, sort of the respected anti-poverty crusader, who contacted a lot of people in basically the black business and scientific community when the New York Times 1619 project came out. And I suspect a Quillette audience will almost invariably know what this is. But for those that don't, the 1619 Project is sort of a bit of woke history from the New York Times, where a series of authors led by Nicole Hannah-Jones argue that essentially everything that makes the USA unique comes from slavery. So this was a full issue of the Times Magazine. I mean, and it literally is extremely broad. One of the essays is called How Segregation Caused Your Traffic Jam. They, they go into some depth. I mean, Hannah Jones herself argues that the reason the American Revolutionary War was fought was to preserve slavery. The thing that made the American South rich was slavery and so on down the line. And there are a lot of empirical problems with this. I mean, Hannah Jones was attacked so universally by historians for the Revolutionary War claim that she actually, I believe, revoked that a couple of days ago. Slavery, in fact, I mean, I would argue dramatically impoverished uh, a region of the USA. The South is still catching up today. What you had there was a reliance on sort of feudal Russia-style peon agriculture, while the rest of us were competing with 
the Brits and the French and so on when it came to making you know, mechanical reapers and the like. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff just wasn't true, but it was being very, very, very widely circulated. And it was kind of, it was Black Lives Mattering. You were hearing about it you know, anytime you might be holding a drink somewhere. People would say, you know, how can we make up for this tragic legacy? And of course, everyone despises slavery, but most of these claims just weren't true. So um, a group of fairly prominent black academics, by no means all right-leaning, uh, decided to get together and respond. And being, by this point, mostly relaxed, over 30, if not 40, well-off people, I mean, we had a conference and put together an initiative, which became 1776. But um, you've got Bob Woodson involved, Glenn Lowry, the legendary economist, uh, Shelby Steele, needs no introduction, John Sibley Butler, the historian, uh, Coleman Hughes, um, over on your team at Quillette, mm -hmm. you know, just going down the line, uh, Talib Starks, the um, community leader who wrote uh, The Gospel of Nisus, uh, kind of mocking victimology. I was honestly pretty pleased to get invited. Um, sort of one of those things, new think tank beginning, and you're, you're on the list of people picked out. I, I don't know how many, you know, relatively witty conservative black guys there were in the you know, target area at the time, but it was still, I think it's a, it's a good cause, something I'm glad to be part of. But the, the motives are several fold. I mean, one, respond to uh, 1619, and two, more broadly, that Howard Zinn style of woke social mm -hmm. science in general, um, no society is perfect, but that is almost invariably pretty flawed. But to promote our own ideas, we have a full-on professional website, uh, www.1776unites.org. There's a speaker's bureau list of our contributors and essayists and so on. But more broadly, to make the point that the United States is a flawed, but in general, very good society, where it's not that hard to make it, given hard work and personal responsibility. That's a message that we're really pretty focused on conveying to people, especially to young African-Americans, and perhaps especially, again, to young African-American men. There's nothing more damaging than taking people and telling them that the reason for all of their problems is some long-ago historical race war. And that's especially the case when that's not true. Uh, many of the issues in the contemporary black community date back to welfare reform in the 1960s, in a sense. The black illegitimacy rate in 1938 was 10 or 11 percent. And I'll, I'll be fair and say the white illegitimacy rate was about 5 percent, if that. So we've seen massive surges in both of those very recently. And it's important for everyone to sort of address the real problem across racial lines as opposed to pointing fingers and blaming and bickering. One of the alarming things about the New York Times project is that many of the um, essays uh, and a lot of the material um, are going to be used in schools, in high schools, to teach yeah. children about America alongside Howard Zim, complementary material. Is there any, have you found any appetite to teach um, uh, your materials alongside the New York Times materials to create some kind of uh, more balanced picture of the history of the United States? Well, I mean, as, as I said, many of the people involved with 1776, frankly, have a business background. I mean, I spent quite a while in the bullpens on Michigan Avenue and so on in uh, Chicago as I was funding grad school. I mean, Bob Woodson, higher level, runs the Woodson Center. I mean, John Sibley Butler started and sold a um, number of businesses. We have some investors behind the scenes, and they probably prefer to remain that way, but that are, you know, at least that experience. So, yeah, um, we'd like to do all of that stuff, frankly. 
Um, I think what we're looking at right now, at least in terms of the project team I'm on, is kind of some video materials to counter um, some of the things 1619 puts out there. And there's the potential for some of this to be genuinely funny. I mean, could you do a video showing, you know, hood, you know, left-wing conspiracies, by no means confined to the hood, but as they actually would have happened, I mean, for example, well-dressed white businessmen dropping off guns in a slum or the laboratory where people created AIDS. I mean, responding to kind of the urban myths in the black community or on the left. I mean, that's, that's an idea I'd be interested in. Yeah. I mean, our, our first piece of video content is more just us standing in front of green screens and talking, which is what we're, we're working on now. But I mean, some of the humor ideas are things that probably will be incorporated into our website at some point. And one of the things I talked about with Bob was potentially selling a quote unquote white privilege card for 1999. Right. If you bought it, you'd be able to see the exact value of your white privilege everywhere you went, grocery stores, for example. So there, there's some of that. There's some almost bantering items. There's some pretty serious video. But when you get into a school curriculum, yeah, that's something we're discussing as well. And I think we'll do it. I think there'll be a substantial target market. And for example, integrated suburban schools, actually, if I had to think about that from a kind of a business case perspective. Uh, 1619 definitely has one. You can find it by uh, just Googling Pulitzer Center 1619 curriculum. And I find a bit of it kind of scary in yes. terms of the idea of we're going to tell kids this stuff very early on. I mean, it's targeted at all grades. The first question I remember reading on their website is what is national identity, national memory, and how can we change it? Finally, Will, um, have you... Um, brought any of your expertise on hate crime to bear on the question of whether um, the hate crimes against um, Chinese Americans have increased uh, since the outbreak of coronavirus, and in particular with Donald Trump referring to the coronavirus as the Chinese flu or the Chinese virus. We, we hear a lot from liberals that this has unleashed a wave of anti-Chinese American hate crimes across the United States. Is there any evidence that that's actually true? Well, I will say when you mentioned, you know, topics so hot, you're reluctant to touch them. That was one of the ones that I hadn't started researching yet for that reason. <laughs> I mean, when you, you don't want to say, come on, but when you look at that, like researcher examines whether epidemic of hate crimes against Chinese Americans during coronavirus epidemic is a hoax, you know, that, that you might see, you know, people throwing vegetables and so on. <laughs> um, at, at the same time, with that said, I mean, every question is a scientific question. Um, I mean, I mentioned that I talk about interracial crime in the book. We find out there's not an extraordinary amount of it, but I touch on that. Race and IQ, again, I think that's primarily, if not entirely, cultural, but I touch on that. It's one of those very taboo topics. You know, transgender identity. So any question is a scientific question. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to find that at least some of those cases were hoaxes. I think the thing is that right now we just don't know. I mean, so we've seen this pattern. I will, I will say this. We've seen this pattern a bunch of times with Donald Trump in particular, where Trump has said something and he's been accused of. Yeah, the, the one that sticks in my mind is the Washington Post um, about a year and a half ago running a headline that just literally said hate crime surged 226 percent in wake of Trump rallies. And this became international news. I mean, relayed by virtually every major paper. And when this was investigated, it turned out first that hate crimes hadn't increased. So the claim was that counties which were rash enough to hold a Trump rally 
if re- just reading what the numbers look like, saw a 226% increase in hate crimes, i.e. if there had been five, there would now be 11, and these were, these were more brutal. What actually turned out to have happened was that hate crimes increased 226% relative to the increase in hate crimes, which was tiny, in counties that didn't have a Trump rally. If the counties that had Trump rallies saw a 2% increase in hate crimes, and the counties that did not have Trump rallies saw a 1% increase in hate crimes, that would mean that the increase in hate crimes in the Trump counties was 100 or more percent larger, if that makes sense, than in the non-Trump counties, even if there had been almost no increase. So there's a bit of kind of statistical playing around there. And it turned out at a deeper level that many of the things that were labeled as hate crimes simply turned out not to be. They were things on the order of people distributing offensive leaflets. So, I mean, the largest hate crime story about Trump so far did, in essence, turn out to be false. Uh, In the Chinese situation... I don't know. We'll we'll have to look. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if after a very controversial figure says something like this is a virus that we got from China, which happens to be accurate. A number of people would decide as kind of a show of activism to say, hey, I was victimized because of that. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a guaranteed audience for that. I mean, obviously, one of the things to sideline for a bit that I've been amazed by during the COVID-19 debate is that while we're debating how serious this is as a disease pandemic, this social justice bullshit has kept cropping up. I mean, the question of what to call the disease seems to me utterly irrelevant. Um, I've heard that there are some WHO directives in recent years that have argued against this. They're obviously not binding here. But naming diseases after places like the Spanish flu, MERS, and so on is extraordinarily common. Mm-hmm. So this is a tempest in a teapot style fight in the first place, but it's taking place at a higher level than you'd probably expect. Um, I went to the CDC website the other day to see whether I should go out and get a coronavirus test, basically, which, by the way, as a healthy male under 50 would be nearly impossible, it turns out. But um, the first page of the website, I mean, I think question one was, what is coronavirus? Question two is, why are Chinese Americans stereotyped because of coronavirus? Mm-hmm. So that is leading the discussion. And it's worth noting the questions that followed that, like deep questions about sexuality, food. Can I go to a funeral during the coronavirus era? But a hit of that had been placed this this point of discussion, why are people attacking the Chinese? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that social justice has not gone away during this time of crisis. Very sympathetic to any individual Chinese Americans that have been attacked. I would like when things calm down to look at every one of these cases and see how many get successfully prosecuted. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what that'll be. Okay, well, well, listen, thank you very much for talking to Quillette and um, best of luck with, uh, with your new book. Yeah, thank you. I mean, glad to talk to you guys as well, and I uh, hope everything's okay over there. Stay, stay healthy. Yep, stay virus free. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hope to hope to talk again down the road. Let's do it. Okay, thanks, Will. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.